Good evening to you. Second Chronicles chapter 13 this evening. If you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisle right now with Bibles. And if you just wave to them and get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands and you'll be able to follow along uh, reading as well as listening this evening, which is always uh, the best way. We finished off last week with the end of chapter 12, obviously, and uh, with the death of Rehoboam, who was the son of Solomon and the end of his reign. And then he, he was followed, as we're told in the final verse of chapter 12, by his son Abijah reigned in his place. And we're told that in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, Abijah became king over uh, Judah. And he reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was uh, Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. And there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Uh, in the, we remember that with Rehoboam and Jeroboam, there was like uh, border conflicts that were going on. Now, whatever the uh, differences that they have, we don't really understand what is the provocation for this particular uh, battle or this particular war, merely that it happened, but things are escalating. And um, uh, so uh, the Abijah uh, then set in uh, the battle in order with an army of valiant warriors. He is the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And so he brought forth 400,000 choice men, Jeroboam, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. He drew up in battle formation against him with 800,000 choice men, mighty men of valor. So 400,000 on one side, all of them very skilled uh, soldiers, the best, and then 800,000 on the other side. And so as Abijah prepares for war with Jeroboam, he's um, outnumbered 400,000 to 800,000. Abijah appears to desire to um, reconcile in some kind of a way with Jeroboam in the north to in some way uh, avoid this battle. And so he then stood on Mount uh, Zemraim, which is uh, in the mountains of Ephraim, and he now makes a speech to uh, Jeroboam and to all of Israel in an attempt to bring a reconciliation. As we're going to see, uh, he's not a great reconciler. He has a very slanted view of history, and uh, but he has some other things going for him that God likes, and so he's going to it's going to work out okay for him. So here's his speech. He said, should you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave dominion over Israel to David forever, to him and his sons by covenant of salt? In other words, a long lasting covenant. And yet Jeroboam, this northern kingdom of Israel, the son of Nebat, the servant of Solomon, the son of uh, David, rose up and rebelled against his Lord. So this is known as revisionist history. It isn't that God is endorsing this man's speech, just merely that it is being recorded for us. Number one, God made a promise to David and to his lineage that they would reign uh, indefinitely as long as they obeyed the Lord. Solomon, who was David's son, uh, began a, a, a life of disobedience. His son Rehoboam, also disobedient to the Lord. And so 
the bringing to the end of, of a purity of David's dynasty, that was not the fault of Jeroboam at all. That was the fault of the sons and grandson of, of David. This whole idea that Jeroboam led a rebellion against Rehoboam, again, as we've seen last week, uh, the reason that the nation was split in two into a northern and a southern kingdom had all together to do with Rehoboam's pride and with his sin and with his arrogance. Jeroboam was simply asked by the people to be present when a offer or a request was made of Rehoboam to ease the taxation and ease the slave labor situation. And uh, then when Rehoboam answered them out of his pride and out of his air against the harsh answer, then Jeroboam was in place to become the king, as God had said would be the case, because he knew that history would shake out the way that it did. And so he's <laughs> he's kind of like um, shaking your hand and poking you in the eye at the same time. So uh, this isn't the greatest speech that a person could give, again, seeking uh, reconciliation. And then he spoke of the worthless rogues that gathered uh, to Jeroboam, and they strengthened themselves against poor old Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was just a poor little young and experienced guy. He just couldn't withstand him. He's 41 years old. And he didn't get taken advantage of when all that came down. It all came down again because of his own foolishness and his own pride. And so, you know, this is what's recorded here. And this is how they were apparently viewing the history in the southern kingdom of Judah. And now you think to withstand the kingdom of God, which is in the hand of the sons of David. And you are a great multitude, and with you are the golden calves which Jeroboam uh, made for you as gods. Have you not cast out the priests of the Lord and the sons of Aaron and the Levites and made for yourself priests like peoples of the other lands so that whoever comes to consecrate himself with a young bull and seven rams may be a priest of things that are not God's? And so now he makes a charge against Jeroboam and against the northern kingdom of Israel, a charge that can stick. Because Jeroboam did introduce an entirely new religious system of his own imagination into the northern kingdom of Israel that involved the worship of the two golden bulls that he had set up, one in Dan in the north, one in Bethel in the south. And so here he rebukes him for his idolatry and chasing out all of the priests and all the legitimate priests of Jehovah as, as a result of the idolatry, and he rebukes them for that. And this is a charge that, as I said, does stick and, and is a fair, uh, a fair charge to be made against him and a fair rebuke. He goes on to say, but as for us, Judah, the Lord is our God. And we have not forsaken him and the priests who minister to the Lord are the sons of Aaron and the Levites attend to their duties. We've been careful to follow the Levitical law. And they burn to the Lord every morning and every evening, burnt sacrifices and sweet incense. And they also set the showbread in order on the pure gold table and the lampstand of gold with its lamps to burn every evening. For we keep the command of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. And thou Look, God himself is with us at our, as our head, his priests with the sounding trumpets to sound the alarm against you. O children of Israel, 
Do not fight against the Lord God of your fathers, for you shall not prosper. So uh, the southern kingdom of Judah under Abijah wasn't, uh, you know, a, a super deep spiritual place to be, but it was a lot better than what the northern kingdom of Israel was at that time. And the fact that they brought out the priests here to sound the trumpets in order to go into battle was an indication that Abijah was viewing this as kind of a religious conflict of what was happening here. So there is faith in God. Uh, it's not the purest kind of faith, but it's what, uh, you know, what is the best that he's got at this point in time. So there is a little bit to commend it here. And he does view this as him uh, coming against Again, we don't know the provocation coming against the idolatry of the northern kingdom and a desire for the southern kingdom of Judah not to be absorbed by the idolatry and the false religious system that Jeroboam had set up. But Jeroboam, while all of this speech was going on, he evidently didn't like speeches. Because while the speech is going on, he caused an ambush. He took advantage of it to have an ambush go behind uh, Judah's army. And so they were in front of Judah and in the rear of Judah. And so the ambush was uh, behind them. And so when Judah looked around after the speech, to their surprise, their shock, the battle line was both at the front and rear. And they cried out to the Lord in prayer, the desperateness of the situation, already outnumbered two to one. And then now strategically, their position is indefensible. I mean, it just looks like for them, as they look at that, you put yourself in their shoes. It, it looks like, OK, in less than 30 seconds, a bloodbath is going to begin. We are absolutely going to be slaughtered to a man. Uh, in front of uh, with the condition of the battle. And so they cried out to the Lord. The priest sounded the trumpets and then the men of Judah gave a shout. And as the men of Judah shouted, it happened that God struck Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. And the children of Israel fled before Judah. God delivered them into their uh, hand. And Abijah and the people also struck them with a great slaughter. So 500,000 choice men of Israel fell slain. And you, you picture a battlefield of half a million bodies. not wounded. Half a million dead out of 800,000. So it's just an incredible uh, slaughter that uh, occurred here. It makes me, you know, I think about something like this. I'm thinking. <laughs> but, I mean, these guys just joined the army. But they're on the wrong, they're in a nation and with leadership that puts them on the wrong side of God. And so here is this thing, and, and so important not to be caught on the wrong side of God, even in a military position where I am defending what is unrighteous, defending what God has promised uh, to judge and put myself in the place of judgment myself. And so this is the position that uh, they put themselves in. I have no doubt that they were zealous followers of Jeroboam. And the whole religious system that he had set up. And thus the children of Israel were subdued at that time. And the children of Judah prevailed because they relied on the Lord God of their fathers. And Abijah then pursued Jeroboam 
took cities from him, Bethel and its villages, uh, Jeshanah and its villages, and Ephraim with its villages. And significantly, we notice that Bethel was taken uh, as a part of the battle. Bethel was the southernmost, one of the southernmost cities of the northern kingdom of Israel. Again, one of the locations of the two golden calves that he had set this whole worship, uh, uh, false religious system up here. And, uh, and so all of that uh, was, was taken away uh, from them. So at least uh, Abijah did at least trust in the Lord God during his war here against Jeroboam. And God did give him a, device, a, a decisive uh, victory. And so Jeroboam did not recover strength again in the days of Abijah, and the Lord struck him and he died. So Jeroboam was just a terrible, 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 terrible human being. And uh, he, he was given an opportunity to be one of the greatest kings in Israel. But he chose to, to just lead in a, ten of the twelve tribes of Israel into just pure idolatry. And uh, here was his end, uh, never recovered from this blow that God had uh, smitten him with, with related to this defeat. And there are no real uh, references in the scripture of uh, what exactly how the Lord did strike him, as we're told here in verse 20. But the verb struck there in the original language refers to a violent death, either by virtue of a sickness or some outward act like a murder or an assassination, uh, something like that. And so he now passes from the scene. But Abijah, he grew mighty. And married 14 wives, begot 22 sons and 16 daughters. The fact that it's recorded of him is not a, uh, an endorsement of this by God in any way, simply a record of it. And uh, his, he violated God's standard for uh, the kings to marry once and have one wife. And so here's the multiplication, modeling himself after the world. And now the rest of the acts of Abijah, his ways and his sayings are written in the annals of the prophet uh, Edu, chapter 14. And so Abijah then rested with his fathers and they buried him. And then Asa, his son, reigned in his place. And in his days, the king was quiet. Uh, the, uh, the land was quiet for 10 years. And again, I want to make note of it, and I will make note of it all the way through the end of the historical books. Here we have a good king following a bad king and a long line of bad kings. So here is Asa. He is a good man. He's going to be one of the best kings that the southern kingdom of Judah ever had. But he was raised in wickedness and he was raised by an ungodly father. And yet and, and his grandfather was of the same type and his great grandfather was Solomon, who apostatized through the latter part of his reign. So here is a young man who is breaking a generational um, thing in his family toward wickedness. And I always like to remind us because of the way that our world is today, where you have so many people, especially those of you who are younger where you can be raised in this just generational wickedness, no Christianity in your family, and not only no Christianity, but people involved in the worst kind of things and seeing things at such a young age that no adult is intended to ever see in their whole life. And it can become a child's entire portion of their whole childhood. And so there's such a prevalence of, of wickedness and ungodliness 
in our culture today. And here we see that by the grace of God, we don't have to take on the legacy of our parents. We don't have to follow them in our wickedness. The reason that we don't have to do that, even as Christians, however, we come to know the Lord and and we don't have to continue the sins of our parents. The reason is, is because we have a God option. Everybody does in this world. And that is that any of us can be born again into a new family, family of God, a new father, God, the father. And then God's Holy Spirit comes into our lives and he gives us the ability to now. Be, he gives us a, a new start. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He gives us a new history, a new family, and then new power to live a different kind of life. And so if you sit here tonight and you're not born again yet, and, and you're wondering, how can I, I've been six generations and my family has been all of this. Is there hope for me? Yes, there's hope for you in God, in being born again. Maybe you're born again and you are, and, and you are following the sins of your parents. The only reason that, and the reason that you're doing that is because you're ignorant of the fact that when God comes into your life, He gives you the power to live an entirely different kind of life, a life like Christ. And so I love this, and, and it's one of the things that comforts me, is I see the wickedness growing so rapidly within the culture. But it's not just that. As I see the victims of it, younger and younger, younger, just heaped up in piles. I mean, you want to get alarmed about 500,000 dead on a battlefield? How many millions and tens of millions within just our nation alone, not to speak of the whole world, of, a, of generations of youth who don't even reach adult life with any semblance of of Purity or any semblance of the fact that purity is something to be valued, addicted to all kinds of sins before they even have a chance to go out and, and be an adult and make their own decisions. They're already between 28 balls in life. And then to, to come in and to realize, though, that God will step in and he'll make these kind of changes. And he did it in Asa. And I tell you, I get worked up about it every time because I hate to think about where I would be today apart from those same truths. Now, we look out at the world and sometimes you can look and say, well, what about the person who hasn't been born again? And they're generationally into some kind of a mess. What's the solution for them? Can they be held responsible? See, the, the fact that everyone can be born again and live a different kind of life makes me responsible. I can't blame my parents. I can't blame my uncle. I can't blame my boss. I can't blame anybody else because I have an option to following in their footsteps. And the option is to follow after God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the person, even the person who isn't born again, is still responsible for the life that they're living because they can be born again. And everything can change. So I say three cheers for God and that he's bigger than any of our pasts and can give us a fresh start and, uh, and excellence and an excellent family. So here is Asa. He comes on the scene and, uh, and comes out of this background and is a very, very good king. And he did verse 2, what was right, good and right 
in the eyes of the Lord his God. Notice the reforms that he made. And I want you just to maybe underline, even literally in, in your Bible, it's okay to do that, but uh, at least underline it in your, with your eyes, the, the, the strength of the reforms that he made. For he removed, that's a strong word, the altars of the foreign gods and the high places and broke down, that's very strong language, the sacred pillars, and he cut down the wooden images. And so here he is. He goes back, becomes the king, has a love for God. Uh, he's going to falter late in his life, but he has a love for God here. And he goes in and he's going to undo um, one, two, two and a half generations of wickedness in the land. Of Abijah, his father, the wickedness of Rehoboam, his son, the wickedness of his great grandfather, Solomon. And he just goes throughout the entire land and he says, mow it all down. I don't want one semblance or one iota of idolatry left in this land. Now, here's a man who understands that he's going to be accountable to God for what he is in authority over. And so he says, I want all of it completely cleansed. And this is what he did just out of his own personal relationship with the Lord. And so they removed, they broke down, they cut down. You notice he didn't take it out of the house and store it in the garage or put it in a closet. This guy knew how to burn bridges to sin, not only for his own life, but for those that were under his oversight. And then he went further positively and he commanded Judah. He urged them to seek the Lord God of their fathers, draw back to God. Wouldn't do any good to remove all these things physically and materially if they didn't turn back to the Lord. So he told them now, everybody, now let's seek the Lord God of our fathers and then also to observe the law and the commandments. Let's obey God's word as well. And then he also removed the high places and the incense altars from all of the cities of Judah and the kingdom was quiet uh, under him. And so he goes out there and and uh, having removed everything out of Jerusalem and the nearby territories, he expanded his reform out into um, the entire uh, land and then just wiped everything out and, and cleansed it all out of the way. And the result was the kingdom was quiet uh, under him. The removal of sin and the removal of idolatry from a person's life always results in a life of peace, results in a life of rest. One of the most interesting verses in, in this is Isaiah chapter 57, verses 20 and 21. Sometimes, you know, we look at the culture and, and, and wickedness is so glorified and wicked lives and wicked people are made the heroes of this and they make the zillions of dollars and these are the gods of the age and the whole thing and, and all. And, you, and it just looks so, you know, glamorous and looks like the life to live and especially when you're younger before you see the casualties of all this kind of stuff. But God spoke through Isaiah and he said this about it. God sees the whole picture. And he said, but the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. They don't know a moment of peace. They don't know a day of peace. 
or a night of peace, the kind of peace that you and I enjoy as just simple Christians obeying the Lord. And I'll tell you, I, I've walked with the Lord since 1980, and if you were to take the... The value that I place on peace, on rest, on just knowing that I'm right with God. I can be wrong with everybody else in the whole wide world or everything can be burning down around me. But if I know that I'm right with God, you can't offer me the whole world to take that peace away for a day because I don't know where I'd go without it. I don't know that I could process life independent of that again like I did earlier in life. So the value of this and the Lord lets us know, hey, it looks like everything looks like the greatest thing. And here are the heroes and here's the everything. He said, there is no peace for the wicked. You don't want it. And so this value of this peace that was a part of his reign because of his righteousness and removing evil and then ur- urging people to grow positively in a relationship with God. And then he used this time of quiet. And he built fortified cities in Judah, for the land had rest, and had no war in those years, because the Lord had given him rest. And therefore he said to Judah, let us build these cities and make walls around them, and towers, and gates, and bars, while the land is still yet before us, because we have sought the Lord of God, and we have sought him, and he has given us rest on every side, and so they built and they prospered. So they've got a nice quiet time in their history. And what he does is he uses it to build up the national defense for the nation of Israel. But the picture of it for us is when we have these seasons of rest or seasons of quiet that God gives to us. Sometimes it's just pure, total, crazy, off the graph warfare, one nostril out of the water Christianity for some. You know, it's just crazy like that. And the spiritual warfare, it ebbs and it flows. But then sometimes there's those pockets of peace and there's a great tendency so so often to take and use those time that time and just fritter it away instead of using it profitably in order to build ourselves up spiritually and fortify ourselves spiritually for coming warfare. Because this kind of peace, spiritual warfare, because this kind of peace doesn't go on uh, indefinitely in terms of. Of, of warfare opposition by the world or by the devil. And so this is what he he does. He uh, took an opportunity to build all of this and build that uh, infrastructure up and then build up the military. Asa, verse 8, also had an army of 300,000 men from Judah who carried shields and spears. And from Benjamin, the other tribe, 280,000 men who carried shields and drew bows. All of these were mighty men of valor. So their military, as he was getting it ship-shaped, 580 men who were uh, bowmen and also spearmen. So quite a military. So you think, all right, well, if um, why would why would he take any time to invest in uh, in building up a military? Doesn't trust in God take care of everything in life? Is it okay for a Christian to own a gun and and have it in their house for self-defense? I say we still live in a fallen world. And so here he is, and, he, and he's got his priorities right. And it's important to notice this. He rid the nation of idolatry, turned it back to God. He got the nation right spiritually. Then he addressed the military. 
And what he's modeling before the people is this. Our single great defense as a nation is not our military. It is our faith in God and our relationship with God. But then he following getting that right, he then builds the military because the world is a fallen place and he had to prepare for whatever attacks might occur. I like it in the book of Nehemiah where they're rebuilding the wall. And I think it was Spurgeon who uh, wrote a book or had a sermon called The Sword and the Trowel. So on one hand, they had the sword waiting to be attacked while they were rebuilding the wall. And in the other hand, they had the trowel in order to do the work. And in the fallenness of this world, sometimes it's like that. You've got a sword in one hand, a trowel in the other. And having a sword in one hand is not a lack of faith in, all, in God at all. You're simply giving God that option to use uh, if it's necessary, again, in the fallenness of this place called planet Earth. But do make sure uh, that you have the option given you by God. And so all of this military is is built up and uh, for good reason here, because then Zerah, the Ethiopian, came out against them in battle, an invasion from Ethiopia with an army of one million men. That's a lot of guys. When's the last time you counted to a million? It'd take you a long time. Somebody might know how long it would take. That's a lot. That's a big old army to see coming across, invading your land. One million. And then if it couldn't be any worse, they've also got 300 chariots and they came to Marishal, which is about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. So we put ourselves in a place, not just a historical account, but we put ourselves in the place of Judah. You've just been invaded by an army uh, uh, with an army of one million men uh, fabulously equipped for warfare. This is the this is a so you say, okay, what are we looking at here? Uh, I don't think we're going to be invaded in Modesto tonight. And so what's the lesson here? The, the, the lesson here is the trial that they're in the middle of is a, oh, no, God, if you don't come through, I'm going to die kind of trial. That's that's the situation. Now, you fill in the blanks for your own life, for what that looks like. But that's the kind of trial that they were in the middle of. And so Asa went out against him. He meets this invade, invading force. With his military, they set the troops in battle array in the battle of uh, in, in the valley of uh, Zephathah at uh, Merashah. And Asa then cried out to the Lord, his God, and he said, Lord, it's nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power. And so he begins his prayer. And it's a beautiful model for prayer. He begins his prayer by acknowledging the greatness of the God that he is calling out to. Lord, has nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who uh, or with those who have no power. And so he he is acknowledging that God is greater than the need that they're in the middle of here, that it, it is equally easy for God to defeat an army of a million or five million or an army of five hundred uh, of five thousand. You, you can't speak of difficulty 
that Jeremiah wrote, is there anything too difficult for God? Not only is there nothing too difficult for God, there isn't anything difficult for God. Because he is uh, omnipotent. He is all-powerful. And so, you, you, in order to uh, address the, um, uh, the old saying is, um, in order to assess difficulty, uh, it has to be done in the assessment of the agent who's being asked to do the work. So when we call out on God, on God to be involved in our situation, because he is infinite in his power, there's nothing that's difficult for him. And he recognized that about God in going to him in prayer. It wasn't a thing of, wow, I think this would make a great verse in the Bible. God, I'm going to say this, and if you like it, would you include it in the book? This is what he felt about God. Now, Jesus, when he taught the disciples how to pray, they said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he said, all right, after this manner, pray. Our Father, which art in heaven. I'll tell you, I never pray that in the morning, except a peace comes over my life. This is who I'm going to walk with today. This is who I'm going to lift the needs of myself, my family, my church family up to in just a moment. And the impact that it has. And so he begins by acknowledging the greatness of who it is that he's going to be lifting this prayer up to. And then he goes on and he gives the petition of what he needs from God. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on you and in your name we go out against this multitude. And so they cry out for victory. And then there's a great concern as well for the glory of God. Oh, Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. Lord, we're just minding our own business, trying to walk with you the best we can. And we're obeying you the best that we know how. These people are picking on us here and all. This battle is not about us and them. This is them picking on your family. And so your reputation is involved in this, Lord. And so don't let us be defeated and and let anybody talk about uh, anyone prevailing against you. And so the Lord, in response to the prayer, he struck the Ethiopians before Asa and Judah and the Ethiopians fled. Ever seen a million men run (laughs) a retreat? Well, they did. And Asa and the people who were with him pursued them to Gerar. And so the Ethiopians were overthrown and they could not recover, for they were broken before the Lord and his army, and they carried away much spoil. And so this battle, um, the retreat of the Ethiopians covered a, a, a territory of about 25 more miles south west uh, of of Jerusalem, and so this is just like a 25-mile race in terms of the battle and uh, overcoming the retreating forces. And so they defeated all of the cities around Gerar, for the fear of the Lord came upon them. They then plundered or took the spoils of all of the cities, for there was exceeding much spoil in them, and they also attacked the livestock enclosures and carried off sheep and camels in abundance, and then they returned to Jerusalem. And so here is this great, great victory that God had given to them. And the great lesson of this chapter and Asa's life, because he's going to forget it. 
the great lesson is God gave him a supernatural, amazing victory in response to his simple faith in God. That's that's the that's what happened here on this particular scene. You have to think Ace is thinking to himself, man, after what God did here, I may have other crises in my life. But the one crisis I won't have is I won't have a crisis of faith. There won't be any situation that can ever come across my life for the rest of my life that I won't respond to in faith and absolute confidence that God can take care of it. Man, this is something you just never will forget. And yet he's going to forget it. And he's going to fall in this very area. And so the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. He was a prophet, and he went out to meet Asa following this battle. And do you realize that sometimes we need to be rebuked or warned following a great victory as much as before a great victory? And we do. So he went out to meet Asa, and he said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you're with him. If you, that's conditional, if you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. (laughs) You have to think that Asa would look at Azariah and say, what are you doing? I mean, you have a firm grasp of the obvious. Forsake him? How and why in the world would I ever forsake God for the rest of my life? He just defeated a military of a million men and 3,000 chariots in front of me. I'll never have a crisis of faith for the rest of my life. God never warns, except that he knows there's a reason for the warning and that it needs to be heeded. You know, God knows you like nobody else knows you. He knows you better than you know you. You think you know you pretty well. He knows us very, very well. And so when he warns, he knows there's a little something in there that I've got to rebuke or I've got to speak to here. And or it's going to be trouble. And he knew it was in Asa's heart. And so the message was given. And for a long time, uh, Israel, Asa went on and said, for a long time, Israel has been without the true God, without a teaching priest. He had plenty of priests, but none that would teach the word of God. And they were without the law. But when in their trouble they turned to the Lord God of Israel and they sought him, God was found by them. God is gracious to their repentance. And in those times there was no peace to the one who went out nor to the one who came in in battle. It's always defeat. But great turmoil was on all the inhabitants of the lands. And so nation was destroyed by nation, city by city, for God troubled them with every adversity. But you, you can break off from history, Asa. But you be strong and do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. And so the Lord encourages him him here uh, in giving him the warning, but then also encouraging him in his faith. The New New Testament equivalent of verse 7 there is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 
And when Asa heard these words, immediately he was encouraged by them. This prophecy of Oded the prophet, he took that courage, the encouragement. He removed all the abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin. And now he goes through the land with a fine-toothed comb to remove all of it. And from the cities which he had taken in the mountains of Ephraim, and he restored the altar uh, of the Lord that was before the vestibule of the Lord. And so he had intensified his destruction of the idols, and then somehow the altar that was out in front of the temple, uh, it had been damaged in some way, some unspecified reason. We don't know why, but then he then repaired that. And then he gathered all of Judah together, commitment service. We're going to commit our lives as a nation to the Lord, all Judah and Benjamin, and even those who dwelt with them from Ephraim, from Manasseh and Simeon. So these were northern, these were people of the northern tribe of Israel, and they had come over to Asa and to the south and to Judah in great numbers from Israel when they saw that the Lord God was with him. And so they're living in the midst of that idolatry and they see here is a leader who is following God. They were looking for just such a leader. And and so they began to to uh, uh, come down into Judah, become a part of Judah again and, and influence it. And so they were a part of this dedication uh, service as well. And so they gathered together at Jerusalem in the third month in the 15th year of the reign of Asa. And they offered to the Lord at that time 700 bulls, 7000 sheep. All of this was from the spoil that they had uh, received from the uh, from the defeat of the Ethiopians, giving back to God. And then they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all of their heart and with all of their soul. And whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel was to be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. And so they committed to seek the Lord uh, with all that they had under the penalty of death. And, of course, those that were refusing to renew the covenant were uh, to be put to death because their refusal could mean only one of two things, uh, their acceptance of other gods or their involvement in idolatry or some kind of an enmity or a hatred toward the Lord. And so they made their oath in verse 14 before the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting and trumpets and ram's horns, and all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with all their soul, and he was found by them, and the Lord gave them rest all around. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be a part of a ceremony like that? A nation turning back to God on that level. And for a generation to be able to look and say, for this generation at least, we'll once again be in right relationship with God and in a place where we can see Him bless us the way that He longs to bless His creation. And also Asa then went on and he removed uh, Maacah, the mother of Asa, uh, the king. Really, in the Hebrew, there is no... A word for grandparents, and so mother means kind of descendant. It can be used as a grandmother. Maica was Asa's grandmother, and uh, she was the queen mother left over from uh, the former kind of administration, very idolatrous woman, and she had uh, made an obscene image of Asherah, 
and, and put it there in the area of Jerusalem. And Asher was just, again, an obscene symbol uh, used in the, the worship of the fertility god of, of Asherah. And so Asa went in, and again, we look at the strength of the words that are used. He cut down her obscene image. <laughs> you say, all right, beat him, bust him. That's our custom. Ooh, Asa. But he wasn't done. He then crushed and burned it, as an example, before the nation, by the brook uh, Kidron. He didn't leave even powder left of of any of it. You've got to remember the culture. It's not the culture like the United States of America, where it's like, hey, one generation is its own generation. There's very... uh, Sometimes very little loyalty toward parents or grandparents or these kind of things. And that Middle Eastern culture, there was such respect for the elderly and for the patriarchs and the matriarchs of of the family. So for this guy to come out and to make a stand, a public stand against his grandmother in this way was just a huge thing for him to do. And what he was communicating to the nation is, I choose to be obedient to God when I am forced by an ungodly family member to choose between that ungodly family member and to choose uh, between them and God. And that's the stand that, that he took. Very strong stand. To, to do that against the blood relationship, even to this day in the Middle East, but certainly in that ancient culture. And so he was communicating to the whole nation, I love God more than any other relationship in life, even a family relationship. And of course, we know that Jesus calls us to the same thing. He who loves, he said, father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Sometimes people read that and they think, wow. Especially a new Christian, your husband or your wife. Or let's say you're a wife of a non-Christian, your husband of a non-Christian. Say, God calls me to love him more than even my wife and my kids. Oh, no, we've already got problems. Well, he hears about this. No human relationship will ever suffer because we put our relationship with God first in our lives. We will have more love to give to our children, more love to give our, to our spouses, believing or otherwise, for giving God that place in our lives. There's nothing to worry about at all. And so he burns and gets rid of uh, all of this. But the high places were not removed from Israel up in the northern kingdom because that was beyond Asa's reach. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was loyal all his days. And he also brought into the house of God the things that his father had dedicated and that he himself had dedicated in his victories in this battle, silver and gold uh, and uh, utensils. And so he brought this spoil and, and put it in, refilled the treasuries of, 
uh, of the temple that had been looted by the king of, uh, of Egypt. And there was no war until the 50th, uh, 35th year of the reign of Asa, chapter 16. And in the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Baasha, king of Israel, new king up in the north, he came down against Judah. And he built a city called Ramah that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. And so Ramah was about five and a half miles north of Jerusalem. It was on the main north-south commercial corridor of of the ancient world. And so it was of great importance to both of those kingdoms who made money off of trade. And so whoever controlled Ramah would control the traffic between Israel and Judah. So Baasha is attempting to take control of the center of the land, not just for commercial reasons, but he is he has probably so many people leaving the northern kingdom of Israel to go to the south under this godly king that he's probably trying to stem that flow a little bit uh, as well. And so uh, here is this provocation uh, against uh, Asa here. He's got to do something about this. It's basically a declaration of war, and he, and he has to address it. And so we're told how Asa addressed it. He then brought silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord, empties out the wealth and from the king's house. And he sent all of it to Ben-Hadad, who was the king of Syria, who dwelt in Damascus. And here was his proposal. Let there be a treaty between you and me, as there was between my father and your father. See, I have sent you silver and gold. Come, break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. Now, What did Asa do when he was attacked by the Ethiopian army? First thing he did was pray. And there's no prayer here. So here he's a little bit older in life. He's got a little bit of wealth because God has given him some victories. He's got some options. It's a funny thing when we're so often when we're a little bit younger, so often when we're new in our relationship with the Lord and we don't have two quarters to rub together. And that can be true older in life, too. You don't have two quarters to rub together. The only option we have in life is to trust God and to honor him in that way. But sometimes God can bless and it can be $50 in a cookie jar. It doesn't have to be millions of dollars. That's a $50 option. And if the attack on me can be solved with $45, now the temptation is to turn to that instead of prayer. And so here now, later in life, he's got options now to God and to prayer. And so he then begins to use those things to manipulate himself out of the situation here. It's so important, again, The longer we walk with the Lord, because I mentioned it last week, I don't believe in the prosperity doctrine that's taught today. But I do believe that in general, Christians will prosper even materially by being obedient to the Lord. If for no other reason than that we don't pour our money into sinful activity, that alone puts us ahead of the curve related to the world. And so as those Fifty dollars in the cookie jar we got in the house there. We have to be careful now to make sure that that doesn't now become a competition in our heart against God to fully trusting in him all the days of our life until and until the final day of our life. So Asa now has options he's never had before. 
So he's going to figure this whole thing out. He makes the proposal. Hey, you've got a treaty with Baasha. Why don't you attack uh, uh, in, in his land? So he's got to pull off from building this city and, and then we can solve this problem. And so Ben-Hadad, he thought it was a great plan. He listened to King Asa. He sent the captains of his army against the cities of Israel. They attacked uh, Ijon, Dan, uh, Abel, Ma'im, and all the storage cities of Naphtali. And now it happened when Baasha heard that he was being attacked at the rear of his lines, that he was forced to stop building Ramah, so he then ceased his work. And then Asa came in, he took all Judah, they carried away all the stones and the timber that were being used to, to build up Ramah, which Baasha had used for building, and with them he then took them and used them to build the cities of Geba and Mizpah. So a little uh, Old Testament uh, recycling here uh, in, in the Bible. Now, this whole plan of Asa, very, very clever and successful, uh, but it, 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 it demonstrated a lack of trust in God. And what Asa does here is he dishonors God before the entire nation. And he makes it look like God can't take care of his people. We've got to take things into our own hands here. The plan that he came up with in terms of approaching Ben-Hadad, humanly speaking, it was a brilliant plan. I mean, he, they executed that plan to absolute perfection. It was more effective than they ever dreamed that it could be. I mean, you can almost hear the congratulations in the back room as they're breaking open the uh, sparkling apple cider and patting one another on the back and the success of the plan. Everybody's happy. Everybody's happy. This is the greatest thing. Everybody's happy but God. God isn't happy with what's happened here. And it's possible for something to work in life but to displease the Lord. And what he did here is that he robbed God of an opportunity to bring glory to himself by responding to the faith-based prayer of his children. And it's important for us to realize as his children that this is a big deal to God. God loves to bless his children. He loves to be trusted. He loves to do these kind of things. And it robbed him of that opportunity and it dishonored him not only before the nation but also before the whole world it looks like ah yeah push comes to shove God's people are just like everybody else in the world they just pull out the money try and buy a mercenary army which is what everybody did in those days their God is no better than the gods of the Canaanites so that's what was going on God's reputation was at stake here and in all of this And so the Lord is displeased with it, and so he uh, rebukes Asa over it. And at that time, Hananiah, the seer, came to Asa, the king of Judah, and he said to him, Because you have relied, and I want you to circle that word relied in your minds at least. This this word relied is going to be repeated three times in God's uh, rebuke. Because you have relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on the Lord your God. Therefore, the army of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand. Were the Ethiopians and the Lubim not a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen, yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. And so the Lord rebukes him 
for getting help from Ben-Hadad rather than seeking the Lord uh, for help. And, the, and what the Lord is asserting is that he would have just as happily defeated Baasha as he was to defeat the Ethiopians earlier if they had only relied upon the Lord. I'll tell you, I think that verses 7 and 8 are among the saddest in all of the Bible. Because basically what God is saying to Asa is this. He said, when did I ever fail you? When did I ever give you a reason to turn to the hand of man for deliverance? I would have gladly helped you again. I wanted to do it. I longed to do it. But you never gave me the opportunity. It's in this relationship that we have with God. There's two people engaged in the relationship. There's our side of the relationship, which we can become completely consumed related to and forget that there's a heavenly father who also receives from this relationship and he's blessed by our faith. And so here is this this uh, broken heartedness of God that is even behind the rebuke. And when Asa now he, he talk about revising history in our minds, when Asa hires the army of Syria to get out of this pickle. It means that he's revised the history of the victory over the Ethiopians in his mind because he looks back on that evidently and thinks that that victory came to him not as a miracle of God as the long years have passed from it, but that it was just a great military thing that had occurred, that it was all about soldiers and army and not about God. And God is reminding him that victory was all about me, not about a military. So he rebukes him. And and the Lord then goes on to tell him in verse 9, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, to give us an indication of the heart of God, how much he searches out faith and longs to find uh, faith and, and to bless faith. For the eyes of the Lord... They run to and fro throughout the whole earth. He never misses one bit of faith that's directed to him. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. In this you have done foolishly. Therefore, from now on, you shall have wars. And so because Asa had chosen to fight according to the flesh, then he would have wars from then on, God declared as a part of his chastening. So verse 9 again, the Lord is communicating how it is that he eagerly watches for an opportunity to help those who trust him. He's not just looking uh, everywhere just for, for a chance, but he never, ever misses one bit of faith that's directed toward him. He never overlooks an opportunity to bless and to honor faith. Now you think about that tonight, a situation maybe in life that you're in tonight. What an encouragement to faith that is. What an encouragement to prayer that is, because prayer is an expression of our faith in God. To realize that any time I extend any faith toward God, he notices it, he treasures it, he honors it, and he acts on our behalf as a result of that. It is a fabulous, fabulous encouragement to faith in the Bible. He's very eager to work 
in response to our faith if he's given but the chance. Now, Asa's response is not a good one. And then Asa was angry with the seer and he put him into prison for he was enraged at him because of this. And then Asa oppressed some of the people at that time. Apparently, there were people that came to the prophet's defense and protested the imprisonment of the prophet. And then he also then turned uh, on them and oppressed them as a result. So clearly, Asa, at this point in his life, late in his life, he's no longer humble. He's no longer repentant. He becomes angry. And, uh, and so he's no longer teachable at all. Lifted up in pride. Again, one of the great dangers of pride is that the first thing that pride does in my life is it eliminates my ability to recognize it. I become too proud to know that I'm proud. So God sends his word, whether in the book that's on our lap tonight or through a prophet that he might send as he did to Asa to rebuke our pride and to warn us about our pride. But if we refuse to be teachable to what God is saying to us, then pride continues in our life and it only sets us up for destruction. So often we hear the saying in the culture that pride comes before a fall. No, it's worse than that. The Bible says a haughty spirit comes before a fall. Pride comes before destruction. And so he is unwilling to be teachable by God. And once you, a person isn't willing to be taught by God, I mean, how proud is that? I mean, I don't, I can understand people not being teachable to me or to you or some mere person, but God, and this is the position that, that he's in. And so he resents the rebuke and, and puts him in prison as if, you know, imprisoning the messenger changes uh, the message in some kind of way. And here's the lesson of Asa's life, and it's an important lesson. Asa showed less faith toward God in his old age than when he was younger. And that shouldn't be the case, but it is common nonetheless even today among God's people. Where again, as we grow older, instead of our go-to-God concerning everything, faith growing greater, uh, it can wane compared to earlier part in our in our life. We figure things out on our own instead of praying or depending upon the Lord. Or we begin to manipulate the situation. We start to make phone calls and set this up and, and use our own resources rather than asking God to bring glory to himself somehow in this situation. And later in life. And our relationship with God, it's not the relationship that we once had with God in the past that's important, but the one that we currently possess. The Lord wants us to depend on him all the way to our dying breath in this life. And so often it, it is so easy then, you know, as, as, as time goes on and we begin to again, we begin our, our thinking can be so funny we can esteem ourselves later in life or lo the longer we walk with the Lord. We think of ourselves and our current spirituality. We consider ourselves as spiritual as we once were in the most spiritual time of our life. Even if there's decades of separation from that level of spirituality. 
Again, it's a great self-deception. And so there's that necessity of being spiritual and actively engaged in faith with God, relying on him, not only early in our walk, but also all the way to the end, because the Lord enjoys that in his relationship with us. And maybe I bring it up because I look at my own life and I see the tendencies of my own flesh. It's just so easy to start to figure it out, to manipulate it. I can make two phone calls and have this thing fixed. These kind of options that we sometimes have in life. And to stop and say, God, I don't want to do that. I didn't have that option when I first came to know you at 25 years of age. Now, I think I'm spiritual than I was then, but I wonder if I am as spiritual if these are the things that are coming to my mind first, above prayer and trusting in you, I think it's a good lesson, a good warning. And note that the acts of Asa, first and last, are written, indeed written, in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And in the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet, gout or something, we don't know exactly. And his malady was severe. Yet in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. So this isn't a knock on physicians or going to doctors. But he refused not only to take the great international need of the nation to the Lord, but he reached a place in his life where he ceased to take his personal needs to the Lord. The Bible says to lift up everything in prayer and supplication to the Lord, large and small to the Lord. Large is easy. The small things become large if we don't lift them up to the Lord. We just use use our wisdom related to them. And so he did not seek the Lord for healing. And the intimation here is that God would have healed him if he'd have done it. But he didn't do it. You ever known a Christian who's ticked off at God? It's it's an ugly old thing. But it happens. They get disappointed at what God did in their life. Or they're disappointed at how God rebuked them in a situation. And rather than realizing that God's rebuke and his chasing is an evidence of the fact that we are his children, they get bitter against it. All right, I'm done with that. I'm not going to I'm not going to pray anything. And so he just hardens his heart against this whole thing. He's angry with that prophet that God sent. He's angry with God. Now he's not even going to lift up his feet if his feet fall off his body. God wanted to heal him the whole time. I hope none of us have any of that kind of bitterness against God tonight. We only do ourselves harm as a result of it. God wanted to do more, but he's not even going to lift up the smallest thing to the Lord at this point in his life. So he began so well, and he did begin well. He stumbled toward the end, and we regret that for sure, but we learn from it. And so Asa rested with his fathers. And he died in the 41st year of his reign. So a very long reign and a relatively good reign. And they buried him in his own tomb, which they had made, uh, he had made for himself in the city of David, Jerusalem. And they laid him in the bed, which was filled with spices there in the tomb and with various ingredients uh, prepared in a mixture of ointments. And they made a great burning for him. So they didn't cremate him. The Jews don't cremate. They didn't cremate him. They were just burning incense 
and perfume and all of these fragrances around his body. So they gave him this uh, kind of a great state uh, funeral, very, very elaborate, very beautiful. And uh, he was certainly do all of that, the remembrance of the good he had done for so much of that uh, 41 years of his reign. Let's stand together. If the worship team come forward, that would be great. I think it's just a good thing, and uh, I want to get us in there to pick up the kiddos and stuff on time as much as possible. But it's good for us to let this passage search our lives. And maybe even on the drive home, don't turn on the radio or you get home, just take a walk. We still have some daylight going on or just sit someplace and just ask the Lord, Lord, am I honoring you with my faith today as much or more than other times in my Christian life? Or have I moved away from this? Lord, do you hear my prayers as much as you used to? Do I depend on you the way that I used to? Lord, do I honor you and give you an opportunity to bless the way that I used to? And if we've moved from that to realize that it not only does bad for us, but it hurts the heart of God and to turn back to that. Lord, I want to depend upon you in anything. I want to honor you and your position in my life in everything in life so that I don't share Asa's end, so that my, be, my life can be his beginning all the way through my entire life. And again, it's easy to slip into. So tonight we'll pray, but if you look at this and you say, I am very far from where I should be on this issue, and I recognize Asa to a T in my own life, take some time tonight to just settle some things with the Lord so the passage can have its full impact upon our lives in the way that God wants to. Thank you for your word, Lord. We never marvel as we turn the pages and go from one chapter to the next, to the next, to the next. What is it that you're going to say, Lord? What revelation from you? How, who could know us this way apart from the Creator, Lord? And who could treat us as gently as you do, Lord, and as graciously as you do. We thank you for your voice through the scriptures and we pray, Lord, not only for our own individual life, but for each of these men and women that stand before you in this room, that this great important lesson of Asa, that our faith is as valuable to you later in our life as it is earlier in our life, Lord, that that great lesson would find a foundational place in our walk with you this evening. We look to you for that, Lord. And we close tonight, Lord, in this prayer, giving you thanks that your eyes do go to and fro throughout the entire earth, searching, Lord, for the smallest little speck of faith to honor in the life of your children. We thank you that you are that kind of God and we thank you for the privilege of worshiping a God like that, Lord. Thank you for being our Heavenly Father this evening. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.